broadcasting live from the Sukkah in uh, Matt Town's backyard. That's the magic word, is live. Live. This is what happens when you do live radio. Better late than never. And you know, one great thing about doing a, a true crime show, I'm Burl Bear, that's Don Waldman, man in the lawyer chair, is we get to talk to criminals. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah. we even get to talk to career criminals, people with a, a long-standing or sitting or shackled history of crime. And uh, I got to ask, Felon O'Reilly, our guest today. Yeah, he actually works in front of a captive audience on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Felon, is that your real first name? No, God, no. That's no. Just a oh, I was hoping that you maybe call it was. Me Al. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. hoping that maybe he had a sister that he called Miss Demeanor. I didn't. <laughs> My mother wasn't that mean. <laughs> well, listen. Oh, let's yeah. uh, let's hear a little bit about. You know, we, we Henry Hill was out here uh, last week, not on our show, but on Matt's show. Sort of. Uh, sort of. He was, uh, you heard the expression, three sheets to the wind? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was the entire Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> yeah, that always makes it exciting for you, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it makes a great interview. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he slurred his way through several hours. But uh, <laughs> uh, Tell us about your brilliant uh, criminal career. When did you first decide that, that your life should be one of crime? Uh, I probably was about 14 when I when I made the decision that that's the direction I wanted to go in. I mean, did like and, your uh, school counselor sit down with you and say, young man, your career lies in crime? Actually, no. I, actually, my high school guidance counselor brought me in the office one, one day, and, and, and she said, this is not my job, and I have never, ever done this before in my career, but I would strongly recommend you drop out of school. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, what had you done to get this kind of accolade? Oh, uh, I was always in... I got my first detention in the first grade. <laughs> well, yeah, but they don't tell you to drop out of school. It never got any better, you know. Um, I was just, you know, the drugs were on the scene, and I was selling drugs. At 14, you were selling drugs in school? Oh, hell yeah. So you make it yeah. a good living. Well, yeah, it was a, you know, I, I looked at it as a, I thought I was just a, a, an entrepreneur. You yeah. know what I mean? I was buying, uh, I was buying hits of speed for 75 cents a piece and I was selling them for a dollar fifty a piece. So that was, was a fair markup. And then one day I went to see the, the supplier and, uh, he said, you know, if, if you take a hundred thousand of these, I can give them to you for eight cents a piece. Mm. So, Here's the come on. Yeah, so I was like, well, damn, I ain't got that kind of cash. And uh, he said, you don't need cash, just pay me as you sell them. So I left so there with a trash bag full of methamphetamines on me, and, and I never really looked back. Well, I had how long before you got busted at 14? Uh, I didn't really get pinched for the drugs until I was in my 30s. So I had wow. a good, you had a good I run. Think, yeah, it was... Uh, it wasn't until I started doing heroin that I got started getting. Yeah, that'll slow you down. Yeah. Well, what happened with the with the heroin is it took the choice out of my crimes. Like up to that point, I could pick and choose my crimes, and if something didn't look right, I could walk away and save it for another day. But when you're strung out on heroin, you've got to have the dope and you've got to have the money, and so I didn't have that luxury of waiting. You know what I mean? So I started to get more pinches that way and. Well, yeah, it puts you a greater exposure, draws more heat. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it creates a necessity. But, uh, you know, in hindsight, it's it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Because if, if I hadn't started doing heroin, I don't know that I ever would have stopped drinking and drugging. 
So you had to reach a certain point where it was just wasn't practical application of your talents anymore. Well, it took up all my time. I mean, I had a, at the end. I I, I I stuck needles in my arms for twenty seven years. So wow! I Did you have any veins left? Yeah. Well, you know, they, they luckily I would get thrown in prison for a year or two, and they'd refurbish themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like what is Keith Richards, who uh, goes to uh, Switzerland or Sweden and has all of his blood replaced every year. Yeah. Yeah. It don't work though. That's, uh, that's cold turkey work. rehab. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, but well, can't you uh, get everything you want in prison? Oh hell yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting yeah. that you mentioned that because there's been a lot of uh, local coverage over the fact that the Ventura Jail and several others across the country, they're now taking the position that no more letters are going to be written by prisoners in or out of the jail. It's going to be postcards because oh. of all the drugs that come in in envelopes, behind stamps, etc., etc. Well, I thought the drugs were mostly coming into the prison guards. The, the drugs are coming in mostly, in my opinion, the two main traffic areas to introduce drugs into a prison are A, anytime you give us a contact visit, we're going to get drugs in. How do you and do that? E, the prison. Um, usually with balloons. You know, the, the, the woman usually, you'd have a woman on the outside that mules it in and tucks it into balloons. When I say balloons, they're prophylactics um, because they, they, they won't break like a normal balloon. And uh, she'll keep them in her mouth, and then when you hug or kiss, then uh, you pass them, and then uh, you swallow them. What you do is, before I go to the visit room, I drink as much water as I can so that when I swallow the balloons, they're floating right up top. Then wow. after the visit, I go, I go through the shakedown, strip search, I get back to my cell, and I puke them up. Clever. Wonderful. And we're yeah, boy, well, once you learn how to vomit, you've got it made. That's right. <laughs> These are the that talents is. you learn. Well, like, I've learned something today. There's, uh, there's always ways, you know what I mean? That's, that's what we do. we got nothing but time to think about it. One of the things that's always uh, been a question is, what do you pay for drugs in prison? And where do you get you the pay, money from? You pay cash, and it's all done on the outside. So, so... Normally, what we would do is, is like, I'm selling $100 envelopes, okay? So, so if you want dope from me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a name, and you call your people on the outside, and you put $100 on the Western Union wire under that name that I gave you. So then an hour later, I'll, I call my person and say, did you get the dope? And if they did, then you get your dope. And if they didn't, then you don't get your dope. That way, nobody's getting screwed out of money. Nobody's getting stabbed. And, uh, you know, it's just business as usual. Now, what I find fascinating about this is, of course, it all goes back to you become like people you share time and space with. You take a bunch of sociopaths and put them all together in one place and think they're going to be penitent. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. Right, right. It's a rehab center. <laughs> well, what you have to understand is, and I'm not, I'm not unique in this. I, I was a criminal. I didn't, like, just do a bunch of drugs and end up in jail. I was a criminal. That was what I chose to do and what I chose to be. And so if you, if you lock me up, that's not going to stop me from being a criminal. It just changes my venue. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I'm driven. It, it affects the same part of my brain as drugs and booze. That whole adrenaline rush, that whole... You know, addiction to that. 
Yeah, yeah there's been said a lot of people, their, their addiction is not the drug itself, but the rush from going through the process of scoring it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I had a real hard time with that when I was trying to get sober, um, you know, because I wanted to keep doing crime. And I'd always end up back on the drugs and booze. And then... I mean, were you frustrated then, because you couldn't be a criminal and, and not do the drugs? <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, because it always led me back. And I would actually go to 12-step meetings, and, uh, you know, and then I'd be out doing crime afterwards. I was, I was probably the most spiritual armed robber you ever met, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> two, two guys meet in prison, by the way? <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. no I, I worked at a, um, put together a... Uh, uh, program to reduce recidivism uh, at WSP, Washington State Penitentiary, many years ago. But of course, I ran into the same thing that you probably you remember Timothy Leary. Not oh, yeah. personally, remember, but I, I do. Mm -hmm. And years before he was controversial, he he worked on a pilot program to reduce recidivism really? in penitentiaries. I only think about him with LSD. No, this is this is before that. And he came up with a program that uh, was actually an interesting combination of the 12-step program and just enough psilocybin to loosen these guys up. <laughs> and, and it was incredibly effective. So he goes to the warden and says, Warden, we can reduce the recidivism rate considerably. This pilot program is shown. And the guy says, let me show you something. And he shows him the model of the new prison and says, this is a business based on repeat customers. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> we want these people coming back. Amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that and that's just beginning to change, you know. The Justice Department has just over the past couple of years started to try to introduce uh, you know, a whole new way of looking at that with their with their parole officers and probation officers. What about the privatizing of uh of prisons? Think they well, real I haven't model been there. in any. I haven't been in any private prisons. We but the way I it. look at it is, I mean, come on, could you do any worse? Jesus <laughs> Christ! You well, know how bad somebody must do? think there's money to be made. Well, it's all about money, of course. So when people say the prison system isn't working, that's nonsense. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's generating money. You know. So you spent some years behind bars trying to learn, and finally you decide there has to be a crossroads here. What makes you decide that, hey, I want to get into stand-up comic, I want to uh, do motivational that, speaking. Where does this come that from? Happened, that happened after I got clean and sober. And, you know, what was happening was the laws were changing, and I couldn't. And they were coming out with all these minimum mandatory sentencing, and, and the sentences were getting huge and so something that you used to be looking at five years for and be able to parole out after 18 months now you're looking at 20 to life for the mm -hmm. same offense you know what I mean so but I couldn't stop and so I finally got into prison and, and what's happened to the prisons with all this minimum mandatory sentencing is now I'm going back to prison I'm not locked up with criminals anymore I'm locked up with a bunch of drunk drivers and wife beaters. And, mm -hmm. and the so it changed the whole clientele of prison. It ruined it for us. <laughs> Boy, you just don't no. meet the same class of people in here that you're used right. to. Oh, it's horrible. You're getting all you these low-life normals. Right, that's why we, right. we need private well, prisons, see? Well, well, they don't know how to do time, first of all. And they're lined up to tell on you. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just a whole different, there's no, there were no convicts. Now, you say they don't know how to, to do time. What do you mean by that? 
Well, there's just a certain, there's a certain code you live by inside there, if, if you're a convict, you know what I mean? And it's about respect, and it's about being a man of your word. Because they take everything else, all you got in there is your word. And so if you lose that, you've got nothing. And so to a convict, that's everything. You know what I mean? Your word is everything. Mm -hmm. But then you get these guys that are coming in, that, you know, because they got a, a fourth DWI or whatever they call them out this way, you know, and he's, uh, he don't know how to do time. He's never done time before. He's never planning on coming back to do time, you know, or a domestic assault or shit like that. He thinks he don't belong there and he's not a criminal and, and he has no intentions of, of trying to fit in. And so... The more information he gives to the cops, the easier his sentences. Ah. That kind of thing. So that creates a real atmosphere of distrust. It also creates a very long life expectancy in prison. Well, right, because that's a killing offense. You know what I mean? So it's a really dangerous mix to mix those people with, with, the, with the hardcore criminals. Now, I find this, this fascinating because on the outside, many criminals I have known and loved and not loved were scandalous. Uh, that was scandalous. But that means that uh, they would lie. Yeah. They would cheat. Uh, you couldn't trust their word. Well, of course, then you learn not to do anything with them if you can't trust them. But for those who were so used to being dishonest verbally on the outside, when they're inside where their word means everything, do they change their behavior as far as the other criminals are concerned? Well, I think if you've got a stand-up convict and a stand-up criminal... He might lie to you to scam you, but he's not going to lie to his peers in his culture, his little subculture group. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, and we look at it like, I always look at it like, you know, I'm an honest outlaw. I never claim to be nothing but a, but a friggin' thief. It was Bob yeah. Dylan said, to live outside the law, you must be honest. We have to take a quick 60-second break, fellow O'Reilly. Uh, we'll be right back on True right, Crime Uncensored. <laughs> iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Woldman. And our special guest, Felon O'Reilly, author of Laughing on the Inside, The Life and Crimes of Felon O'Reilly. Just got done in, uh, not as a... Don't Inmate. forget, he's a stand-up convict. Stand-up convict, stand-up <laughs> criminal. Just you just performed at San Quentin. Yes, yeah. I did. I just got out. I just got out. How was that? How'd that go? Uh, it was good. It was really, really good. Well received, and uh, you know we had some laughs, and uh, breaks up the monotony in there. There's a uh, there's a few of them in there that are serious about their recovery, and, and some that aren't, and so. Yeah, well, 
You're, you're going to get that. The, the previous time I was in one of those fine facilities, I took uh, Chicago, you know, the rock band Chicago, to McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary. And uh, uh, the Heidelberg Blues Tour to uh, Sheldon Correctional Facility. And I noticed, I was going to ask you about this, the inmates were a little reticent to let go and enjoy themselves, as if they were looking for permission to laugh. Or yeah, looking... I would think that would be the problem. That's it, exactly. That's it, exactly, is when you're in prison... You need permission to do everything. And so you actually have to, when you get on stage, you have to give them permission to laugh. And the way, the way I do that usually is I'll tell a joke and then I'll laugh at it. Mm-hmm. And, so and if you laugh, that's okay then, right? Yeah, they see you laugh and then they think, oh, yeah, it's okay to laugh. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow, it never, but, but it never they, even occurred to me they'd be afraid to laugh. Yeah, it's not, and it's not really a conscious thing. You know what I mean? It's just that you, you don't spend a lot of time laughing in there. No, you got no, this I big, would imagine not. Well, you got this big hard-ass look that you carry with you. You know what I mean? You got all that macho nonsense that, that you pick up in there, and you need to pick it up to survive. I mean, bad choice so of words, but it sounds like an awfully tough audience. Well, it is. They are. They are a much tougher crowd than, say, you know, going into a comedy club. Oh, yeah. Because you know? they're in there to have a good time. <laughs> right. Most you know, people don't go to prison to have a good time. Right. These guys are sitting there in front of me with their their arms folded, looking at me like, "Okay, make us laugh, asshole." You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like Kipadada's career. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. It was really fun. We got some good footage out of it, and we had a great time. And uh, well, what well, just, what what do you say to the? I just having a little bit of your right? way. Like you come out there, and and you hear they're sitting there with their arms folded, staring at like staring at you like that. And there's guys with guns along the walls. Right. What, what do you say to these guys? Well, usually, you know, I'll tell you know something a joke that's a little on the edge. You know, that kind of is pushing the boundaries so that they know I'm on I'm one of them. You know, that's the first thing I want to do is is the way I dress. I don't want to go walking in there dressed, but you know, in in khakis and a polo shirt, looking like the other staff members. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? I want to go in there looking as much like them as I can. And so they won't let me wear blue jeans, of course. But if I go walking in there with you know, like just a decent pair of sweats. Or something like that, uh, then that kind of breaks through that right away. So that so it stops them from viewing me as an extension of the staff. Yeah, if you went in a correctional guard's uniform, that would probably really dampen. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they bother. <laughs> um, what made you turn into a stand-up? I mean, uh, here you've been in prison all these years. You've been a career criminal. Well, you know, it was kind of interesting because when I was first getting sober. I was doing a lot of commitments in the twelve-step programs, and and so I was speaking at a lot of meetings, and I would be the speaker. And I was a couple of years sober at the time, and I, I've always used humor. And uh, one day I was speaking at a meeting on Martha's Vineyard off of Cape Cod, and Lenny Clark was in the crowd, and and I've talked to him about this, and he's fine with me saying his name. And Lenny Clark's originally from Boston, and he's down in L.A. now, and. Uh, he was back there for the summer. Well, when I got done speaking, he came up to me outside the meeting, and uh, he said, how long have you been doing stand-up? And I said, Lenny, I'm a freaking career criminal. And uh, he said, dude, you really ought to try stand-up. And so other people had told me that, but coming from him, it meant something, because he's a successful comic. Um, and so it kind of like, then I seriously thought, you know what, maybe I should because he was adamant about it. You know, and I said, what am I going to joke about, Lenny? I'm a career criminal and I'm a junkie. He said, that's what you tell jokes about then. You joke about what you know best. And so that's what I did. 
Did you start out in improv clubs or what? I started out at the Comedy Connection in Portland, Maine, where I was living at the time. And, uh, you know, I did a five-minute set in this contest. And uh, and then it just it went from there. People, I found that I found that people have a fascination with prison. Oh, in yeah. Time, oh, yeah. You know? I mean, there's a reason the Sopranos were so good for so long. Everybody's got this fascination with crime. You know, and then you look at some of the prison movies, Shawshank Redemption. I mean, people watch that over and over again. So people have this this uh, interest. They want to know about it. They don't want to learn firsthand. No, 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 they don't. <laughs> they want to be a fly are, on the wall. <laughs> right, they're definitely <laughs> interested in it. And so, and so I just, uh, you know, the first night I got off stage at the Comedy Connection, I just... I said to my girlfriend at the time, I said, I, I want to take this into the recovery community. And so it was always my plan to take this back in behind the walls. Yeah, how um, hard was it to get behind the walls I would think it would be this? difficult, because the last thing you think they'd want coming into prison is a criminal. Oh, yeah, it's a tough sell. <laughs> and, that, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is because once you're a published author... It, it kind of validates you in their, in their That's what world. I keep telling people here. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. work. Because yeah. <laughs> it was tough at first. You know, I mean, what am I going to say? What's my pitch point? I, I say, hey, I'm a junkie career criminal. Let me come in and talk to you guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, we'll call you, you know. <laughs> Everybody that gets into a recovery program has to have a low where they finally say, I can't be this way anymore. What was yours? Mine was... I accumulated 73 arrests and seven incarcerations. 73 arrests? Yeah, but they weren't all felonies. Only about 40 of them were felonies. Well, that's better. uh, um, Even had a mistaken identity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last time I went in, it was mistaken identity because it wasn't my name on the credit cards I was using. Um, but the bottom for me... I like that. <laughs> the, the bottom for me was I couldn't laugh anymore. I just... I was miserable. I, and nothing was fun anymore. That was my bottom. I just couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't stand myself. And uh, You know, I had a son that was born while I was in prison. And, and I, I, I'd get, I got out of the Fed joint and... I'd start to get to know this kid, and I and then I'd get shipped back on a violation for dirty urine. And I would get let out, and I would start to establish a relationship with this kid again, and then I'd get another hot urine and get sent back again. And, and I just thought, I remember thinking to myself, up to that point, I had been, I had failed as a son, I'd failed as a sibling, I'd failed as a husband, and now I was failing as a father. And that kid deserved better than that. And uh, that was my first motivation of making me want to stop. You know, I my I like my kid would ask me to play ball with him and teach me teach him how to play baseball, and I play baseball with him for like ten minutes, and then I'd have to leave because I'd have to go get high. Oh, you know, or, or he'd ask me to read him a bedtime story, and I'd be skipping the little chapters so I could finish the story so I could go get high. 
and uh, my kid was like eight years old before he finally figured out there was actually three of them friggin' little pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this was a setup. <laughs> oh, you let us right down the path with that. <laughs> Uh, that was good. Yeah, you bet. That was good. <laughs> Got me on that. I like that. How hard was it for you to do your first show in prison? Um, that the first one was tough. You know, the toughest thing was, you know, in the back of my head, I, I was thinking, "Can I? Am I sure I cleared up all the warrants?" <laughs> in other words, you want to get out. <laughs> right. You know, and I'm like, you know, um, because it, because it's like that when you go do a, when you go in the prison and you do a bid and you're never 100% sure they're going to let you out until they crack those gates and you're out. Oof. You always think they might find something else to beef you with. Mm -hmm. And so I still had those fears, um, you know, that maybe I, maybe I missed a warrant. and uh, That could happen. But, yeah. And, and so... The first time I went back in, uh, I actually, a week later, I got 60 thank you letters from the inmates at the Maine State Prison. You had to be surprised, then, I would assume. It was unbelievable. It was one of the most spiritual days of my life. You know what I mean? And some of them were actually, like, quoting things I said. Wow. And uh, it was just really powerful. And it was like, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. After you do a show, are you allowed to talk with individual prisoners? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sometimes I do, a, like, a question-and-answer thing. And, like, today we were just out in the yard, and I was just, like, hanging around and shooting the shit with them. And uh, it was it was cool. It was really cool today. Well, uh, one thing I, I noticed talking with guys in prison, like I say, I used to do a recidivism reduction program at WSP, and I was talking about taking personal responsibility and self-reliance and all this, and I got done with the talk and asking for feedback, and one of the prisoners said, I really learned a lot from what you said today about taking personal responsibility. And I said, yeah, what did you learn? He says, next time I pull a bank job, I'm doing it all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That you really said that guy got some, somewhere along the line the communication got messed up. Well, you know, I had a cellmate in the federal joint, and uh, he he really taught me a lot about about doing time and about being a convict. Such as, and, and uh, he he had just finished doing a ten year state bid in Oregon, and he got out he got out at eight o'clock in the morning, and his wife picked him up at the prison. He dropped her off at work at nine o'clock in the morning, and he robbed a bank at ten o'clock in the morning. Good and. You know, there was never any intentions of trying to go straight. He wasn't battling this at all. That he was just, he was a thief. You know. Yeah, but doing a bank with those cameras. I mean, you know, you're asking for it. Ninety-seven percent conviction rate. It's one sure. of the worst crimes you can do. But don't you get to go to a nice, cushy federal prison on a bank job? Wonderful. Uh, no, because usually, like, if especially if you use a gun, then you. Oh you're, well, that's a whole different. You're gonna end up in the pens. You know what I mean? And, and uh, some of them penitentiaries are tough, the federal pens. The mediums aren't so bad. But, I, uh, I got a question for you. Sure. Well, that's part of my job. Uh, 
despite the fact that prisons are supposedly run by the state or by the federal government, once you're in there, it seems more like they're run by these various subculture groups and gangs, the Aryans, the these, the those, and you just talk about how you need permission from the, the Aryan Brotherhood of uh, Skinheads in order to uh, do business with the black guys because you've got to give them a cut of the take. I mean, who's running this joint? Yeah, that's a good question, bro. Well, I mean, we we definitely run it. We have a number of them, you know, sixty to one or better. So, uh, yeah, we it's it's our ball game. You know what I mean? We we just kind of let them enjoy it. <laughs> so, so the inmates are running in the institution. Right, we got the monkey in charge of the bananas. You know, it's our turf. It, it really is our turf. And uh, so, when you, you get know, in there, let's say, God forbid, if I had to go to prison, and I show up. I don't know anybody. Nobody knows me. What am I? What's going to happen? What's what's right off the bat here? Is that I mean I'm going to be bent over and driven around the block like a '47 Chevy? Yeah. What's the welcome no. wagon like? Well, the best thing to do is is you keep your head up and your mouth shut and pay attention. And it don't take long to figure out who's running the cell block that you're on. You know what I mean? And then you, and then you don't want to go like chasing him down to be friends with him. You just want to you know be cool. And uh, and if you are, then they'll welcome you in, you know. And and all these gangs, all these street gangs, they all started in prison. And, and it just it's a necessity in there. You you've got to have somebody watching your back. And so you may not be a full fledged member of the Aryan Brotherhood, but you're connected with them, and you have their blessings. And and uh, and that's how it works. Everybody knows these gangs exist. Why do they exist, and why aren't they controlled? Well, they try to control them. They've got this whole, you know, exit strategy for getting people out of the gangs now. Um, but they, they exist for for survival. Out of know? necessity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything you do in there, pretty much, is is survival techniques. You know, it's just... It's a very savage way to live, and and you live through this knowing that any day you could get stuck any day, or you might have to stick somebody else any day. It's just it's a very basic savage way to live. And this is supposed to reform you? No, it's not supposed to reform you. They sell they say that to sell it to the public, but it has you know the the, the Federal Bureau of, of Prisons will tell you that they have absolutely no intentions of reforming or rehabilitating you. Their only job is to warehouse you. And they'll tell you that straight up when you walk in the joint. Well, so this is kind of like uh, University of Crime. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and you know, that's true. part of the message I try to give is that prison can only be as bad for you as you let it. You know, and uh, because you get out of there, it's impossible to go in there. I don't care what kind of shape you're in, but you go in there and you spend three, five, ten, fifteen years surrounded by two thousand angry men. You're going to come out with some anger. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, that's yeah. Even you, if you don't go in with it, and most of us go in with it. When you were in prison, did you give any thought to writing a book? No. When did that come about? The more I started speaking and uh, and doing the comedy, uh, people people kept saying, "Damn, you should write a book." You know, because I tell some funny stories, which they're funny now, but they weren't so funny when they were happening. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that's. <laughs> and uh, 
And so I ran into this woman that I knew. Um, I was doing carpentry work, and I knew her from the lumber yard, and she heard me doing a, a radio interview. And, uh, of course, she didn't know me as Bellin O'Reilly because that's my stage name, but she recognized my voice. And so I ran into her the next day after the interview, and she said, you should write a book. And I said, I'd love to, but I, I have no idea how to write a book. And so she said, uh, "She said, well, I've never been published in Maine, but I used to write freelance, and I've been published in Atlanta, and I'd be happy to help you. And so that's what we did. I would uh, We sat down with a tape recorder, and uh, I would just talk to her and she'd ask questions and, and tape it and then she would transcribe it and she kind of transcribed it and put it into into a story form that made some kind of sense. Yeah, the, the, the book is called Laughing on the Inside, The Life and Crimes of Felon O'Reilly. It's, it's quite fascinating. And in addition to the book, now there is a, a film, a documentary about you that there's some great clips of up on uh, yeah. YouTube. Yeah, and we I saw that. posted that up on our website. Uh, quite fascinating stuff. Uh... What what's going on with the film? Uh, the film we're hoping actually we want the footage from San Quentin and we're going to use that to close out the documentary, and that's pretty much all we've been waiting for. We've got a ton of footage and uh, now we got to sit down and edit it, and we're hoping that that will be done this fall or winter, and that uh, documentary should be hitting the film festival by spring. Is your is your book in the libraries of the prisons? Uh, my book at the Baker City Prison in Oregon is the most checked out book in their library. <laughs> wow. Ah. I just sent them a couple more. I got it in a few different prisons. And I got actually have some high schools that are using it to teach, uh, teach some criminology classes with them. So. We're going to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with Felon O'Reilly on True Crime Uncensored. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Barbara Opal promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that. It's my book, Mom Said Kill. 
The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes & Noble. Mom Said Kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition, the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. Mom Said Kill by me, Burl Bear. And I will love me to pieces. <laughs> Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man of the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. And with us, right out of San Quentin, is Felon O'Reilly, stand-up convict. I love the way that sounds. Stand-up. Isn't that a great line? Say, I wish I would have thought of that, stand-up convict. You know, he used to play football when he was a younger guy. Oh, yeah. How'd you squeeze that in? <laughs> he took time out of his busy schedule to play a little football and went to, in fact, uh, being, well, you're a nice Catholic boy, I guess. Uh, tell us about yeah. your adventures with the local uh, Catholic priest. <laughs> well, I had been, I got thrown out of uh, the catechism. In the <laughs> Why am I not surprised? And, uh, so I never really, then I convinced my parents that, well, if they're not going to let me go to catechism, I shouldn't have to go to church. And so... My old man agreed with that because that meant I could work. I was going to go to church. <laughs> so he put me to work for him. Um, and then when I was in high school, I think I was a, a sophomore, and uh, we got this new priest at the, the local parish, and uh, he had his Bible study. So my bu a buddy and I kept bugging me to go to it and go to it. And so finally I went. And, uh, and so after the Bible study class, we were getting ready to leave, and he said, uh, the priest says, hey, stick around for a minute. And so after all the other kids left, he says, uh -oh. hey, where can I get some weed around here? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, you just happened to be talking to the right guy. <laughs> and so he became one of my best customers. I would have and you went up to a little spiritual retreat and did some acid. And, uh, it sounds like yeah, you know. actually, it was, a, it was a hippie commune. Uh, it was 1969, the summer love. And, uh, my uh, my old man had asked me to leave the house because they 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 just thought it was insane. They didn't know what to do with me, and uh, so I ended up living up there with uh, with that priest and a bunch of you know a bunch of crazy kids like myself. And I was a little bit younger than most of them, but it was uh, it was a, quite a party. <laughs> do you ever work with juveniles? Yeah, I used to counsel juveniles when I first got out of college, and I ha I didn't have any felonies yet. And so I took a, I had to do an internship, and back then the way it worked is, is you either had to do an internship and not get paid, or if you had work experience, you could substitute it. So I took a semester off and took a job as a juvenile, juvenile counselor. And, uh, were you shooting smack at the same time you were counseling juveniles? Yeah, it was a non-secure facility, and, and uh, they lived on the second floor was their housing quarters, and on the third floor was for the counselors, and... You know, 11 o'clock lights out, I'd be up on the third floor slamming cocaine and heroin. And, you know, I'd do 48-hour shifts, and the next morning I'd go down and tell them of the dangers of the way they were living. <laughs> How do you spell hypocrisy? <laughs> you took the words then, out of my mouth. Well, well then, you know, I would bust them for weed, and if their weed was better than what I had, I would switch their weed. I'd keep theirs, and I'd, I'd put the, the, the not-as-good stuff in in the bag and God, it sounds like that movie The Bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel. I mean, with your background, obviously you became a motivational public speaker. 
Well, it was, uh, I, I ended up, uh, I caught, I caught my first two felonies one weekend, leaving, leaving work. Uh, I got in a, I got in a fight on a Friday night, got arrested and got charged with felony assault, and then I got out of jail Saturday morning and started drinking again, and then Saturday night I run into the same friggin' kid, and he wants more, and so I got in another fight with him, and I got another second felony assault. Jeez. God, you're on a treadmill. Well, you know, then I go, so then I got to go to court on these two felonies, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I got a degree in criminal justice, and I work in the system. Maybe I'll catch a break here. So I get in front of a judge, and, and he said, uh, it says here that you, you have a degree in criminal justice. And I said, yes, I do, Your Honor. He said, it also says that you're counseling court-committed juveniles for the state of Massachusetts. And I said, yes, I am, Your Honor. And he said, well, it appears to me We've got the monkey in charge of the bananas, and I'm sending you to prison. <laughs> <laughs> so and that's where that saying comes from, huh? Yeah, and everybody in the courtroom laughs at me. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that the first time you confronted the concept that you may be an alcoholic was when you got the clap. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I was like 15. And uh, it was up at that hippie commune. And... Uh, you know, so I went to the doctors, and, uh, and I had it for like three months. I couldn't get rid of it. And uh, right, they're giving you penicillin, right? But it's not going right, away. right. But what I didn't know is that, and and the doctor had no reason to ask because I was only fifteen. Was the, you, you got to not drink for twelve days to let the penicillin work? Oh, right. And at fifteen, I couldn't go twelve days without a freaking drink. <laughs> You know, and so then I thought, wow, I better not get the class no more. Because <laughs> 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 not drinking wasn't an option. So finally he gave me the injection. And, uh, just come in the next time you get it. <laughs> <laughs> so they tell you maybe you ought to go to like AA or some other recovery program. And you say, well, I can't be an alcoholic. I'm only 16. That's right. Exactly. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I didn't know this was a disease. You know, I thought alcoholics slept under a bridge, you know. And then one morning I woke up under a bridge. <laughs> By God, they were right. No, no, you know what I thought? I thought, oh, my God, normal people do this, too. <laughs> oh, boy. That's like the, the story about the, you've heard this, Don, but maybe Felon has a true story. This woman has the paranoid delusion she's dead. And so the doctor asks her, do dead people bleed? She says, no, they don't. He grabbed her finger, poked it with a pin, and when she saw the blood, she said, my God, I'm wrong. Dead people do bleed. <laughs> That's a true story. It's the same type of reasoning. Yeah, yeah. But sooner, yeah, the, the, sooner or later, whole... sooner or later, something happens. Uh, with our good friend Shadow Stevens, who I'm sure is listening because he's a big fan of yours, he said when it reached the point when he was in a small dark room with a gun, <laughs> that's when he decided maybe it's just, time. yeah, maybe it's time. You know, I, I, I noticed would, uh, in, in your background that somehow or other you tied in with Bob Marley as an opening act. How's that come oh, yeah. about? Yeah, yeah. I he, mean, that sounds actually, really unusual. Actually, uh, not Bob Marley, the musician. Oh, that's who I thought uh -huh. it was. No, no, Bob oh. Marley, he's a comic. He's a comic. Okay. Me, so. oh. I was going to say that the, the pre-show dope smoking must have been pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, he actually just set the record for the Guinness Book of Work Records uh, yesterday for the longest stand-up comedy act. I think he did almost 40 hours, 38 hours. Phew. So. Now, Kip can do three hours without repeating himself. This guy probably can't <laughs> repeat himself somewhere. <laughs> 40 hours. Who'd want to listen to that? <laughs> 
<laughs> You'd have to be stoned. Captive kept audience. Kept yeah. audience. <laughs> so you're making a living. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Life, uh, <laughs> no, life's good today. I guess. When are you going to write the great prison movie? You sure got enough background and experience. Well, you know, I have a, actually have a, a guy I'm working with now. Oh, you do? That's right, yeah, that's writing a treatment for a screenplay from the book. It reminds right. me of, uh, we haven't had him on the show, but uh, Rabbi Borovitz. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> we haven't. You know Rabbi Borovitz, uh, uh, Don? What's his crime? Uh, well, he has a book called uh, uh, The Holy Thief. He was uh, a lot like uh, Felon O'Reilly, and then he came up with the greatest cut in the world. He became a rabbi. <laughs> and uh, he runs, uh, he's the head rabbi over at Temple Beit Shuva, which is a recovery, combination recovery. And, and well, often people forget that rabbi really means teacher. Yeah. You got to do a lot of learning to be a teacher. <laughs> Supposedly, anyway. So, uh, but people's lives do change. One of the things that amazes me is the attitude. I mean, this is America, where supposedly you're innocent until proven guilty. And we've we talked about this before. We got the trial by talk show, indictment by soundbite, where people lock them up, lock them up, throw away the key. I'm sure they did it. And then maybe uh, DNA comes out and they didn't do it, or it was a false confession, or God knows what. Of people, you talk about these mandatory sentences and say, but once, once you're a criminal, you never change. The leopard doesn't right. change its spots. Well, right. your spots have certainly mutated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah, you're yeah. in the minority, unfortunately. Yeah, but but I don't think I have to be. You know what I mean? I think that, uh, you know, and that's one of the messages I try to bring when I go into the prison, you know, because, you know, for me what it was like is is those prison gates would slam shut behind me and I would realize everything I had, everything I'd worked for is gone. Really? That's it? And then, and then within a few minutes it would hit me that when I get out, I'm just going to do it again because I didn't know how to stop. And aren't you know, there guys, fellas, aren't there guys who have an identity in prison? They are somebody. They got a role to play, but if they're on the outside, they're nobody. Absolutely. I was a total failure outside. I, I, I could not stop sticking needles in my arms on the outside. But inside, I'd done enough time. I was old enough that, that I had respect. I was kind of like running the cell block. I could get you dope. I could get you whatever you wanted. So you were using drugs in prison? Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hell yeah. How do you make oh. the money to get the drugs in prison? By selling them. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> is it that simple? <laughs> By crime. <laughs> but you got to sell them to somebody. They got to do something to get the money. I mean, so it's, it's this whole big giant cluster thing going on. Right. I mean, there was a. There was one incident where there was an attorney that I was doing time with, and uh, you know, every, <laughs> terrific. Yeah. It wasn't you, was it, Don? Something to look forward to, huh? Every day, I'd see him walking up to the law library with his little briefcase, and and uh, you know, he really had this air about him that he was better than us because he was an attorney, and we were criminals, and so we needed money to get a, a good amount of dope. And so one day I grabbed him, he was coming by my cell, and I grabbed him and I threw him down on the bunk and my cell, he slammed the door shut. And I just grabbed this guy by the throat and I put a, a piece of paper on his chest with a name and address on it. And I said, look, if there ain't $2,500 at this address by Monday, you're checking in. Which, which means he's checking into protective custody. And, uh, and so he came up to me like, 
Thursday, and he said, look, I got 1,300 coming, but you got to give me a week to get the rest of it. And I was like, hey, no problem, buddy. You know, no problem. I'm a reasonable man. <laughs> and so that gave us a nut. And, and so stuff like that, it sounds appalling to people that have never been in there, but it is absolutely 100% totally acceptable in there. That's how you live. Boy, it's a whole different civilization. Absolutely. It's, all, it's a whole different set of rules, and, and uh, that's what you need to do to live in there. Well, it seems to me with, you know, whenever the elections come around, one of the big, you know, points is get tough on crime, stronger sentences, all this stuff. It just seems like a bunch of BS to me. Of course. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. Because now you know what they're doing? Now they're, now they're actually legislating loopholes to help you get out from under the mandatory minimum because none of these congressmen and state reps and state legislatures want to be the ones to say that they're getting rid of the minimum mandatory sentencing because they'll be accused of being a light on crime. And so it's all political, and it's all a bunch of nonsense. And uh, and the people in there know it. Absolutely. And so, and so that's what I've tried to do with the book and with the comedy, is, is I try to take this to the individual. You know what I mean? Because if we wait for the government to correct this, a lot of lives are going to be lost, and it's going to take another 25 years. You know? And so I try to get people to take, take a little bit of responsibility and take it upon themselves to to make the changes that they need to make. Very original, you know. very respectful. The book That's is great. called Laughing on the Inside, The Life and Crimes of Felon O'Reilly, as told to Sandy Webb. And uh, you can uh, go to felonoreilly.com and you can see Clifton This is an film. entertaining book. It's really well worth reading, even if you're not in the slammer. <laughs> oh, don't plan on going there in the near future. Now, one, la one last, we got to go, but one last thing. If you come here in person when you come to L.A., you know, we broadcast live from an 1876 Virginia City style fully stocked bar in the hills of Encino. Will that be a problem for you? Not at all. The problem ain't the booze. The problem is me. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it right. You got it right. We'll look forward to seeing you, fellow Riley. Thank you so Great much. talking to you. Thank you, guys. Great guy. Yeah, really. Great guy. Great. Can you see the clips of the documentaries? Yes, I did. Really good stuff. Really good stuff. Uh, Magic Matt Allen, you've heard of him. Brilliant yep. broadcaster. Broad chaser. Uh, <laughs> the Demons of Decadence. This sounds like a producer. Oh! Did I ever tell you that I invented rock and roll? It was one afternoon when I had uh, nothing better to do. I figured I'd, you know, sit back, relax, play the hits on LR Radio. There she stood. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Oh, come on. Live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program produced by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. Hi. I'm the charming host, legendary Burl Bear. Program is True Crime Uncensored. Yeah, oh, uh, just wonderful. Oh, God. Can you get some feedback for us, uh, Howard? Uh, I'm Burl Bear. This is True Crime Uncensored, the standard of the true crime radio show industry. <laughs> the competition is stiff, she whimpered. Uh, joining us is Howard Lapidus, of course, manager to the star. How's Dr. Uh, Dr. Dre or whoever it is? Dr. Dre. <laughs> Dr. Dre doing very well. <laughs> 
Extremely How's well. Puff Daddy? Puff Daddy doing better. That's great. Happy to hear about it. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here. He's, in, in fact, I've been checking. He's been checking. Frank J. Hagan, uh, formerly with the, uh, what, the Reagan White House? Uh, oh, years ago. <laughs> years ago. And uh, a well-known party uh, favor. Uh, <laughs> a well-known party favor. <laughs> I, uh, did you write that this week, or did you plan it for the last Did week? you actually spend a night up working on that line, bro? No, I just came young. to me all of a sudden in a flash of brilliance. By the way, we're not going to let that go. That was, that was we like that for you. Uh, yeah, well-known party favor. Uh, and a man who investigates party favors and doesn't flinch when the facts smack him in the face, Nick Bryant. Hey, how you doing? Better and better. Don't use the uh, speakerphone or Bluetooth. In fact, go home. No, don't go home. Don't go home. <laughs> Last time Nick was on here, uh, Howard wasn't here, and Ralph uh, Odierna filled in for him. Uh, Ralph decided to pick a fight with Nick, and not having read the book, and Nick just beat the crap out of him. <laughs> well, well we're, we're talking Already, I like him. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about professional broadcasting. You know, right. When you have a pro, you know, they take their guests, and they, they put them in their hands like putty and squeeze. Uh, I said, when you have a pro. Yeah. But, okay. Meanwhile, Nick, welcome back to the show. Well, I'm glad to be back, Earl. Yeah. Well, we're glad you're still alive. Uh, the book is and, called... And my last experience wasn't that dysphoric. I, actually, I enjoyed being on your show. Well, good. This, uh, this one guaranteed to be better. <laughs> Money on it, that's a magic jack. Yeah, you use a magic jack? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's Skype. It's Skype? Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, the book is called The Franklin Scandal, and if uh, someone asked me just yesterday, they said, why is it called The Franklin Scandal? And the answer, who the, Nick, is... Who, who, it's a, who who is Fra- hang, hang it's on, not Nick. Ben Franklin. Mm-hmm. Nick, one second. Who asked you that? Someone in real estate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nick, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the Franklin Scandal gets its name because the Franklin Scandal documents uh, transcontinental pedophile network that was run out of Omaha, Nebraska, that flew children from coast to coast and pandered them to the rich and powerful. And the Franklin scandal gets its name not from Ben Franklin or not from Franklin Stoves, but it was there was a credit union called the Franklin Community Credit Union that served as a front for this transcontinental pedophile network. So ergo, the title of the book, The Franklin Scandal. So, uh, uh, Nick, it's Howard. I, I know very little about what went on here. Um, now, Frank lived there. <laughs> Frank no, I actually I didn't live it, but I knew Larry King. I flew around the country with Larry King. I did work for Larry King. I even rented him the house in Washington, D.C. on California Street. All right, so let's go with Scumbag. I mean, if you know him, there we go. Hey, I, I was accompanying him to the uh, Urban League Convention in San Francisco, and I invited a friend of mine who's a psychic. And she turned to me in the middle of this incredibly lavish dinner, which somebody else was paying for, and said, you have to be careful with him. Nobody that spends money this way makes it legally. And that's when I started pulling away from the situation. So, so Nick, explain to me, and this this question is multi-layered, and I apologize for a multi-layered question, but this is a multi-layered question situation obviously and we can talk about you know obviously what's the question (laughs) question is is how do people do this how do they wake up in the morning and do this how do they sell children how does that work well that's difficult to explain and a lot of instances there's intergenerational abuse 
where someone was abused, um, and then when they grew up, they ultimately become a perpetrator. With Lawrence E. King from Omaha, Nebraska, I have no idea. He seemed to have come from a fairly stable, religious, blue-collar background, and it's really difficult to know what made him into a monster. I've looked into his background extensively, and I haven't been able to find that one fact or one moment that would define him as a monster. I just, I just haven't been able to. So that's really difficult to, to know, as I said before. With a lot of people, it's an intergenerational thing. They were molested, and consequently, they become molesters. But in the case of Lawrence E. King, I do not know what turned him into a monster. It also could be a psychopathic condition where there is not a significant event that that causes it. It's been basically uh, like a birth defect in the uh, the brain. That, and, uh, and the pearl is that, and Nick and and Frank and and Mark guys. How this is King at the center of it, but you know he's selling the kids to people that are buying really rich people buying kids for abuse. How does that mind work? <laughs> um, and that's another thing I've looked into. When I first started uh, investigating the Franklin scandal, I didn't understand pedophilia. Uh, I didn't understand what drives people to pedophilia, and I had to look into that. And this is interesting. I had a, an interesting conversation with a psychologist in Washington, D.C., um, who was referred to me by someone that was that, that played a pretty instrumental role in my uh, investigation in Washington, D.C., because a lot of these children were flown to Washington, D.C., and we can get into that later. But she told me that when you have these really rich, powerful men, I mean, these we're, we're talking men that could afford uh, uh, $20,000 an hour prostitutes at, at one given time. Yeah, but they, they, they didn't want they, them. They, they stay for forbidden fruit. I mean, that's what they want for dessert is forbidden fruit. That's how she explained it to me. Uh, but I think that there has to be some type of pathology to begin with in them to molest children. But I think that the, the power thing also, uh, the, the, the money and power thing also play an integral role. Absolute because power nothing, corrupts absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But if you look at power and if you look at sex, those are two things that really, and, and also greed, that make very smart people very stupid people or very pathological people. And, um, and unfortunately, our politicians and the people that run our country generally have the trifecta of they're power hungry, they're extremely lustful, and they're also very greedy. So you've got these three factors that make people stupid, and then when you, when you combine them in, in a, kind of an alchemy then our current politicians or the people that run our country, you end up with uh, people that are really, really can can do some really horrific things. So the the, the most the famous case in, in your your case, uh, the Franklin scandal, which you, the, the the book is out. We'll talk about how people can get it and, and read this particular story. But let's talk about Sandusky. How does this guy operate? How do the people around him operate? Why do they? Why did they? I'm asking 17 questions because I'm baffled. <laughs> and you expect him to answer all of them? No, let's, let's talk about Sandusky. Okay, I wrote a really nice article about Sandusky where I looked at that, and what you had is in the Sandusky situation was Penn State preserving its not only its prosperity but also its good name by any means necessary. 
that's the thing about institutions. Institutions, you know, I mean, you said that absolute power corrupts absolutely, which is a truism, but institutions live to perpetuate themselves. That's I mean, true. that's also a truism, true. And with Penn State, you had an institution that was willing to protect its power and its money and its prestige by any means necessary, and that included covering up the crimes of Jerry Sandusky. And you have the same, you've got something similar playing out in the Franklin scandal, except you've got it involving the government, which makes it much more egregious and much more horrific. And much more incomprehensible. Well, Larry was incredibly well tapped into the Republican Party. Well, he was very tapped into the Republican Party, and uh, he counted uh, President Reagan and also President Bush as his uh, close personal friends. He certainly threw a huge bash for President Reagan when Reagan was nominated, and he also threw a huge bash for H.W. Bush when Bush was nominated. And he considered them his friends. Uh, whether they were or they weren't, I do not know. But he certainly was quite the name dropper. And people who I interviewed that were close to King said that King did consider H.W. Bush uh, a close personal friend. Oh yeah, I, I met a number of uh, a number of people. But you have to remember, George H.W. Bush was actually one of the people that founded the Black Republican Party, and they found it as a way to tap into that. Uh, I, you know that group in the United States, and Larry King was at one point, I believe, the vice president. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I don't really think our conversation is about. You know, did, are we now pointing fingers at the Republicans? Or, uh, no, 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 no. We're it's setting the stage. Okay, okay, because primarily. Uh, the accusations, and I'm using the term accusation because... I'm, I'm independent, by the way. I'm not a Republican or am I a Democrat. That, that's so, fine. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not pointing the, I'm not pointing fingers at the Republicans or the Democrats. Oh, and, by, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm further to the left than you are, but but it's... it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not here to start to say... Okay, let's just sit, let's just hold on a second. second. Hold on. Mark, Mark I wanted to, I want to make clear uh, as we continue that the Larry King we're referring to is not the late night talk show host. Well, and, and the late night talk show host that you're talking about doesn't it does, isn't a late night talk show host. But, 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 no, we're talking about Lawrence King, and, and and Nick has been very careful about that. Yeah, Lawrence E. King Jr. Okay, so let's set the stage here on on who this Lawrence King is what the allegations are, and your experience of investigating this book. Because as a well-respected, which you are, investigative journalist, who's old school, uh, along the lines of uh, Howard and myself, uh, we come from that uh, that old school, you got to set aside your preconceived ideas, and also Frank also comes from that, that old school journalism. Is It doesn't matter what your opinion is, set the opinions aside, let's go for the facts, let's uh, get our data and follow the money and follow the leads. Yeah, but you have to set the stage up as to where where a lot of these, and I'm using the term accusations again because I'm being careful. Yeah. All right. Uh, Larry was tapped in to the party, uh, the Republican Party in Washington. And he was a former Democrat turned over to Republican. But a lot of the people that he was supposedly setting up these kids for were Republicans, if not the majority of them, all of them. And uh, the majority, uh, from the sources that I have, the majority were Republican, but there were some Democrats also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was an accusation about the former congressman from uh, Massachusetts that's openly gay. 
uh, that he was at one of the parties. You know, but I, when when all of this took place, by the way, all of these parties in Washington D.C. at that house on California Street Northwest, I was there for ninety five percent of them, and I never saw any of this. I never. Did you ever? Let me ask you this: Since you hung out with Larry King, did you ever meet his partner in crime in Washington D.C., Craig Spence? I never met him, honestly. Because a lot of these parties would take place at Craig Spence's house. And Spence had a house on Wyoming Avenue, a very nice house in the Calorama section of uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah. And, right. yeah. And, and a lot of King's parties were straight political parties. Yeah. And, and a lot, actually, a lot of Spence's parties were straight political parties. What happened with Spence, and I've got a lot of information on Spence and King together. There's a lot of corroboration in my book. What would happen is Spence would throw your, your standard Washington, D.C. cocktail party. And there would be people talking about politics and drinking martinis. And, and then at around 10 or 11, something inappropriate would happen, like someone would fire up a joint or break out a line of coke or something sexually inappropriate would happen. And those who you know, were repulsed by that or didn't want to partake in it, they would split. But the ones who wanted to stick around for a good time, then they would be offered whatever they wanted. And Spencer was spending $20,000 a month uh, at an escort service, and he was also procuring children with Lord, uh, Lawrence E. King. But an interesting fact about Spencer's house, and I've got a lot of corroboration on this, it was wired for audiovisual blackmail. There were uh, video cameras concealed all throughout Spencer's house. Not King's place, but Spencer's place. But Spencer's place. And if you stuck around at Spencer's house for the party after the party, now we're, we're not talking the party that you attended, we're talking the party after the party. So if you stuck around for the party after the party, and, and you and you did it at Craig Spence's place, you would definitely be compromised. So were they actually blackmailing people? I do believe that they were blackmailing people, and I think, I, I know it's very difficult to comprehend this type of a story. I mean, you've got the Catholic Church, you've got the Boy Scouts, um, you've Boys got down. Sandusky now. But then you also have Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton had worked very hard to be president of the United States. And it really showed that he was willing to put it all on the line to have a dalliance with an intern. So this type of behavior for guys like this isn't, I, I don't think it's extraordinary. I think, that, as I said earlier, they have a, a potent alchemy of uh, power and lust. And, uh, and, and that can drive them to do things like really put themselves in compromising positions. And if you partied with Craig Spence in an after-hours after party at his place, uh, you would definitely be compromised. And I think the real evidence for this that a lot of powerful people were compromised is that when these kids started coming forward in Nebraska, um, their, it was, their allegations, I mean, social services believed their allegations, and social services went to federal law enforcement and state law enforcement. And they were just simply ignored. And then ultimately, King got taken down for embezzling $40 million from the Franklin Credit Union. That's a nice piece and, of change. At that and, time it was. And, hey, and I and enjoyed and, some and, of and that ill-stolen ill ill money. He was formed yeah. to investigate King's plundering of the $40 million. And, and after the Senate subcommittee was formed, these social services employees went to the, these senators, these state senators, and said, 
uh, the 40 million is only half the story. The, the Franklin Credit Unit is fronting as an interstate pedophile network. That's when the power really started to get deployed to cover this up. Yeah, it seems like when you start talking about that, the, the, the black <laughs> helicopters are coming. Yeah, the black helicopters are coming and people start uh, putting their wagons in a circle. If someone wants to be caught up in that net. But let's get to the, base, the basic, the basic, basic thing that came. With your microphone. Uh, Jesus Christ. You all right there? I'm not happy about it. Uh, okay. Yeah, Nick, I, I, Howard has this problem. It's called microphone. I have a bad microphone. Ah. And then I apologize to the audience. And I apologize, Nick, to you. Uh, the, um, the the basics. What did he do in Nebraska? Let's talk about the basics that Lawrence King did. What did he do? Well, his day job was general manager of the Franklin Credit Union, but he also ran, as I said earlier, an interstate pedophile network that flew uh, children from coast to coast. And where I really got fortunate in this investigation was. There were two grand juries that were used to cover this up in Nebraska. There was a state grand jury and a federal grand jury. And I had the good fortune of acquiring the sealed testimony and documentation of one of those grand juries. <laughs> the good, what, what, someone slipping under your door? Did Howard Hughes send it to you? Um, well, someone who trusted me enough because it was illegal for me to acquire that documentation. It was certainly illegal for me to publish it, which I did. But I felt like there was such an egregious crime here that I felt compelled to show just how corrupt these grand juries were and uh but but among the, those documentation i mean i had like 200 flight seats flight receipts for lawrence e. king and most of them went to washington dc but on the passenger manifest and this is what's really interesting it had lawrence king plus one or lawrence king plus four was king plus five. i was on a lot of those flights from omaha and uh your name probably doesn't appear on any of them. You don't have to worry about that because uh, I wouldn't have to worry about it because all I was was passenger. I, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so I, I was I was being a little facetious there, but, um, but yeah, it's amazing that he was able to get away with this without putting without having passenger manifests. I mean, uh, he was able to get away with that. So so. I mean, I think that that's further evidence that he was able to fly these children from coast to coast. And, and a bunch of the kids that came forward, uh, both to the uh, Senate subcommittee in Nebraska and also to me, talk about being flown either to uh, the West Coast or to the East Coast for, to be used in pedophilic parks. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer has a question for you. One of uh, uh, two of the individuals that came forward, uh, one claims that he was... Uh, um, uh, coerced by the FBI, uh, feels that his brother was murdered as a message uh, to recant his testimony, which resulted in a young lady being convicted for of uh, perjury for 25 years. Whatever, what yes, happened to her? Well, actually, it wasn't 25 years. It was 9 to 15. And the FBI coerced all the kids. If, if you read my book, the FBI, once uh, the Senate subcommittee got rolling and the kids started coming forward, there were six kids that came forward and, uh, and, and basically stuck to their stories. And then the FBI went to work on them. And, uh, and I, I've, I've got, like, the FBI, I've got debriefings, blow-by-blow uh, blow debriefings of how the FBI basically just decimated these kids. Okay, let's, and, stop, let's stop right there. What did when you say 
they did that to those kids. What did they do? What do you? Well, what, what's the proof? You've got the proof. I want. I just want the audience to hear about it. What did the FBI do? The FBI really threatened the kids. Uh, with what? Um, well, they threatened the kids. If you continue with this story, you're going to go to jail for perjury. I mean, the kids were told that directly. That if you continue with this story, you're going to have to deal with the full might of the U.S. government and the FBI because you will be sent to prison for perjury. And how old were these kids? Um, the youngest at this point was uh, 17, and the oldest was 21, 22. So they, I mean, they, they were they were some years removed from uh, being in this pedophile network because they. They just gotten too old to be pandered by Lawrence. They aged out. That happens. Yeah. No, the Trump thing that fascinates me, so I this is Nick, I'm very curious about this. And you know, this is not playing devil's advocate, but when you're sixteen years old or fifteen or seventeen years old, you're a minor. You cannot be interviewed by any source, police, FBI, anything, unless you have a lawyer present or an adult present that is your legal guardian. Who were these kids with when these interviews with the FBI took place? Um, some of them were with an attorney, and, uh, I mean, the FBI broke so many rules. It's really, the FBI was really ruthless uh, when they went after these kids. They were given a mandate to cover this up, and they were going to cover it up by any means necessary. And it's, I, I, the FBI debriefings of these kids are pretty, uh, they're, they're pretty telling. One of the attorneys that represented three of the kids, confessed to having an affair with one of the FBI agents. Male or female? So, uh, she was a female, and she confessed to having an affair with uh, one of the FBI agents. And, and she basically gave the FBI carte blanche to swarm her clients. And so there was all kinds of other, that's a whole separate reason. Take, take There's us, a tremendous take, amount of malfeasance in this story. Take us backwards. Uh, take us, why, take us, all right, the FBI is doing what they're doing to the kids. And, and, and now let's, who told the FBI to do it? Where did it, where did, did let's do Where did the word come down from? Where's the, follow the chain upwards. Okay. Uh, what, what I've surmised, and uh, I believe, uh, because this was also covered up, in Washington, D.C., there was a great, there was a very corrupt grand jury in Washington, D.C. And actually, there's going to be a book coming out in April about the Washington, D.C. side of Franklin um, that that I haven't that was it's going to the author is Henry Vincent, who ran the escort service that dealt with King and Spence. And he was subjected to that very corrupt grand jury. I don't know if your readers are familiar with the grand jury format, but. Grand juries are notoriously easy to hijack. A, a grand jury special prosecutor is chosen, and he presents evidence to the jurors who are just regular citizens who have just shown up for jury duty and they've been funneled to a grand jury. So only the evidence that he deems is appropriate for Germain are shown to the grand jurors. So it's very easy for a special prosecutor of a grand jury to hijack a grand jury. And in fact, a New York appellate judge once said that special prosecutors have so much power over grand jurors that they could get them to indict a ham sandwich. And with That's because it's not kosher. And one of the, uh, I, and as I said earlier, I acquired the sealed testimony of one of the grand juries. And what went on in that grand jury was such a travesty of justice. And that grand jury, 
essentially exonerated all the perpetrators and it indicted two of the victims on multiple counts of perjury. Alicia Owen, the girl, was looking at uh, 180 years in prison uh, for nine counts of perjury and uh, eight counts of perjury. And then Paul Benazzi, one of the boys, was looking at six years in prison for three counts of perjury. So the young lady went went to prison. What happened to her? Uh, well, Alicia's trial. Alicia's trial is the largest section of my book, and I really show just how corrupt her trial was. It was a, it was a, mm, it was a bit of a travesty, yeah, in, in broad daylight. But she was sentenced. Now, here's a kid. She was indicted when she was 21 years old, and her trial, the the federal government and the state government put God knows how much money into her trial. And uh, it was one of the longest criminal trial histories in Nebraska, if not the longest. And uh, here's a kid that was uh, indicted when she was 21 years old, and she was sentenced to 9 to 15 years for perjury. A kid. And she was put in solitary confinement for two years, nearly two years. Oh, God. So, so they my, wanted my, to my, show, my. I mean, there were a lot of victims. I have a list of 60 victims, uh, of approximately 60 victims from the Legislative com- Committee's uh, investigator. He was able to compile a list of at least 60 victims, and that was the list I worked off of to find victims. And there were a lot of victims out there, and all these kids have been told by the FBI, if you continue with this story, you're going to prison for perjury. They were right. Did, did so I, Alicia, Alicia had to be, she, she was definitely... She was targeted, and she was made an example of. But what's really interesting is they just they, they got Alicia by the skin of their teeth. I mean, that jury was in deliberations for three days. And it, it almost ended up with a... They okay. almost, Alicia almost got acquitted. But as soon as Alicia was given, was found guilty, the, the, perjury, trial, the perjury charges against... Paul Benazzi, which were basically some of the same statements, were, were immediately dropped. Now, that because, doesn't make any sense. Well, the Nebraska judiciary knew that they just barely got Alicia, and if they didn't get Paul, then Alicia's testimony would be susceptible. One way or the other, it looks like they really went out of their way to make sure that either their testimony was tainted, okay, or they were turned around Frank Nick. Where, help me out again. Where, where did this come down from? How far up? Where? Well, I would, as I said earlier, okay, I, I wanted to explain the grand jury system uh, to your listeners. And so we have a state grand jury in Nebraska that says that there's no child abuse. We have a federal grand jury in Nebraska that says there's no child abuse. And then we have a federal jury in Washington, D.C. that says that there's no child abuse. And so ultimately, you have the hijacking of three grand juries. The FBI did most of the dirty work in, in Nebraska. The Secret Service did most of the dirty work in Washington, D.C. And it had to have come down from the highest levels of the Department of Justice. Richard Thornburg was the attorney general at that time. And that his Department of Justice had to have been the puppeteer for this type of malfeasance because it only could have been consummated if it was directed from the highest, from, from the pinnacle of the Department of Justice. So is the Secret Service answered to the Department of Justice? Um, the Secret Service's answers to the executive. Yeah, so, okay. How'd that work? How did the well, Secret Service get involved? 
All right, I can follow it to yeah. the Department of Justice. Yeah, because the Secret Service has to, two jobs. I can follow it to... to, to th- okay, I can explain the Secret Service a moment. Um, Henry Vincent ran the escort service that uh, King and Spence were... Well, Spence was spending $20,000 a month on. It was a gay Whoa. escort service. And um, he ran with three other guys. And, and Henry Vincent was cognizant of both King and Spence. Um, he dealt with both of them. And actually, King and Spence had pressured Vincent to provide them with children, and he just wouldn't do it. I mean, he was cool with consenting adults, but he wanted nothing to do with pandering children. Don't blame and they put a, tr- and they put a tremendous amount of pressure on him to... Uh, to what a wonderful human being. <laughs> it, it was, well, he was... Uh, I only want I mean, to be a pimp, not a child pimp. He's, uh, he, he had a moral demarcation that is, that is very much lacking in this story, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> But anyway, uh, the Secret Service was called in to do all the heavy work again. To, 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 to steal all these documentation. I think Junior, you were sure to us. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he was threatened quite heavily by the Secret Service. Now, and the Secret you... Service did all the dirty work as far as keeping Vincent and his uh, and his co-workers to cover up the well this is, this is the, the underlying question that I think Howard's getting at is the Secret Service has two gigs one protect the uh, validity or whatever of the United States currency and then be willing to take a bullet for uh, various dignitaries those are their two areas uh uh, this doesn't come underneath the Secret Service you're wondering Henry Vincent was using credit cards he was running credit cards for his clients so that's what gave the Secret Service entree. Okay, gotcha, uh, gotcha, gotcha. And gotcha. serving this investigation. Yeah. All right, that makes sense now. Now that that's the link that I was looking for. So I, I'm still trying to get out of you. Um, what happened to this young lady? She got out uh, on appeal, and that's the last I heard of it. Um, she never uh, actually. She was out on appeal, uh, but then they ended up putting her back in prison. Uh, all her appeals. I mean, she. In my book, I really show what an appalling trial it was, and she, and and her her trial was so appalling and shocking that it engendered a myriad of different appeals. But they kept getting shot down by the Nebraska judiciary. So she was ultimately she also she ultimately was sent back to prison, and she had to do her time for that. She she ended up uh, serving four and a half years of uh, of her nine to fifteen year sentence. She was an exemplary prisoner. Excuse me, and she was given parole on her first shot at it. And actually, the warden of the prison sided with her, uh, saying that he firmly believed that she had been a victim of this pedophile network. And uh, since then, she's happily married, and she's got a good job. She's never been in trouble with uh, law enforcement. She did her time. She took a stand. She said, I was abused, and I'm not going to recant my abuse. Um, and you can put me in prison, you can kill me, you can do it, whatever, you can do with me whatever you want, but I refuse to recant my abuse. And ultimately she did the time, but since she's gotten out of prison, she's been, she's a wonderful person and she's been an exemplary citizen. Did she get, uh, now, did she get out of Nebraska? She's still in Nebraska, that's what, what her family is. Now this is very <laughs> interesting, one of the kids that, uh, was involved in this pedophile network, and, and, the kid that the uh, state and feds used as a star witness to impeach her, he came out in an affidavit afterwards and said, I was, I lied about Alicia, and I feel really horrible about it because the FBI 
was threatening me. And and his brother was also died under very mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. And Alicia's brother died under very yeah. mysterious circumstances. I, I mentioned this earlier. Okay, yeah, so, so he said, so he said that, uh, and and he told Alicia's appellate lawyer that he would be willing to testify for her on on, on her behalf and say that all his testimony before the grand jury was a lie. So Alicia was granted a hearing. Now this is where it gets really Gestapo-like and kind of mind-boggling for the average American to uh, to comprehend. Alicia and Alicia's parents and and this boy were walking into the courthouse with Alicia's appellate attorney and this kid that was going to testify on Alicia's behalf was just snatched by probably Nebraska State Patrol and put into a room with the uh, the prosecutor of Alicia and there was a lot of screaming and yelling they wouldn't let I mean he was just snatched in broad daylight in a courthouse in, in the Omaha courthouse and um and then as soon as he got out of the room, he said, I can't testify, I can't testify. They're going to put me in prison just like they put Alicia in prison. So, I mean, that's the length that they're willing to go, uh, that the judiciary was willing to go to maintain that Alicia uh, did her time and did not get exonerated. Because to Alicia was just much more than a simple case of perjury. You had two grand juries in Nebraska. You had a state grand jury and you had a federal grand jury said say that there was no child abuse whatsoever in Nebraska, that Lawrence King didn't abuse a single child. So it was imperative that Alicia be found guilty so these grand juries could be sanctified. Now, if, if Alicia was not found guilty, these grand juries wouldn't have been sanctified, and it would have been an open case as to whether or not there was child abuse. So it was imperative to take Alicia down. And like I said earlier, um, as soon as Alicia was convicted, the boy, Paul, who refused to recant his abuse, who was indicted on three counts of perjury, those counts were immediately dropped because they didn't want to jeopardize Alicia's conviction by trying Paul. Because they just barely got Alicia. Frank uh, has a comment or his question. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm listening to all of what took place in Omaha. It's a very small town. I mean, you can't get away with anything in that town without everybody knowing about it two days later or a day later. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was when you were doing the book, did you ever interview Kurt King? No relation to Larry, last name, same last name. No, no, I know who Kurt King was. Uh, he worked with uh, Larry King at uh, the Franklin Credit Union. Yeah, he was the I, assistant I, that traveled with him everywhere. Yeah, I, uh, Kurt would not talk to me. Okay, we got to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with famed journalist Nick Bryant and all about the Franklin scandal on Outlaw Radio's True Crime Uncensored. or you're really cool and you go to Whole Foods because you're really cool. (laughs) You're not tied to your computer anymore. No, you're not. It's real simple. You can listen to Outlaw Radio whenever the heck you want. You can. It's real simple. All you have to do is grab an Outlaw Radio app from our friends at RadioLoyalty.com. 
the smoking, drinking, and interrupting 24-hour party that follows you wherever you may be. Your cell phone or your Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. You know us, the uh, demons of decadence. And change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. It's now available free, free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. The legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rock to the cradle of rhythm and blues, setting the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. However, in my spare time, I'm an award-winning investigative journalist, true crime author, and brilliant radio host when I can get a word in edgewise. Now, let's discuss the fact that you need to own all my books. Even if you are completely illiterate, owning my books bespeaks volumes of your intelligence and erudition. Uh, to buy them. I'll give you a few titles. Body Cow's a good one about the Spokane serial killer. Headshot, two and a half psychopaths. Mom said kill. That's the one where the girl does not get the dirt bike. And <laughs> I don't like dating the show. I like dating all sorts of strange people. Uh, on the 18th, Darren Cavanoke, host of Deadly Sins, will be on the show. Because that night, at 6 o'clock, Darren and I will be on TV together on Deadly Sins, talking about a case that I didn't write about, so I just made stuff up as I went along. <laughs> That's what you call true journalistic integrity. <laughs> Okay, now, let's get back to our regularly scheduled program on True Crime Uncensored. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, yes. Oceans of beautiful... I'll have to I'll hit my own microphone. <laughs> let's all hit our microphone, shall we? Once again, we talked about your book. Well, let's talk about Nick Bryant, Franklin Scandal. The, the hardback is enormous, and you can use it for uh, as a murder weapon because it weighs about 10,000 pounds. Uh, it's, uh, also, it's coming out in paperback, or is out in paperback now, isn't it, Nick? Nick, you still there? Mike, the FBI got him. <laughs> Nick, Nick. Yes. Oh, uh, we thought maybe the FBI got you. Uh, Franklin Scandal, uh, out in paperback now? It's out in paperback, and it's uh, only 1995. It's a very good deal. Mm. Seven years of my research for only 1995. Boy, very good considering what you get paid off of that, you kind of went the hole doing this book. <laughs> um, I still have a broken minimum wage, but uh, it was a good cause. Yeah. What about online? Can we download it? I think it is on Kindle, too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Howard will get it on Kindle. I will. Now, how, why haven't you been arrested for publishing the grand jury stuff? Um, I think that the government wants to attract as little possible attention to this story as it possibly can. Uh, it's, when did it's, they grow a brain? <laughs> Really, one of those stories that uh, if, if if I was arrested for publishing that grand jury testimony, I'd, I'd be brought before a judge or a magistrate, and he would say, "Where did you get it?" And I would say, "I respectfully decline to answer that that question." And they would give me eighteen months for contempt, and that would bring a lot of publicity to my book. And I don't think that that's what the government wants. So, ergo, I haven't been arrested. Could happen any minute. <laughs> I can hear him coming for you now. <laughs> Sneaking up on you. I hear the sirens. <laughs> Actually. But it, would be, it would be a good opportunity for me to get caught up on sleep. So, uh, you know, it might not be such a bad idea. Well, I hope it doesn't happen to you what happened to the guy who wrote Dark Alliance. No, I, I hope that 
I, I hope that I don't share his fate, too. Okay, but that guy who wrote Dark Alliance, which revealed the Iran Contra scandal, supposedly committed suicide by shooting himself five times in the head with a shotgun. Uh, Frank. Hey, hey, yeah, no, me, I, no, no, no. Let me get this straight. Yeah. Five times. I'm ahead. exaggerating. I'm on radio. Come on. <laughs> Frank, Frank doesn't exaggerate. Did, you, did anyone ever approach you for homosexual sex at any of these parties? Yes. <laughs> who, who and what was this? What a was this? former candidate for president that Larry was throwing a fundraiser for. Yeah. Yeah. And he... I think I know who that was. <laughs> he was a former quarterback, right? Oh, yeah. I think actually at that time he was trying to be a tight end. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Look, he's, he's dead and gone now. And he was a quarterback in my hometown. And, and what's his name again? I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do okay, it either. So anyway, you were there in the men's room. No, I was in the in the bathroom of the house on California Street, and I was approached by him, and uh, he exposed himself and asked me if I would be interested in partaking in this rather large piece of Republican meat, and I looked at it and said, where is it? <laughs> and then I walked out the door, and I reminded him of his roommate's name, and that suddenly turned him sheet white, and he left me alone the rest of the night. That settled that. Yeah, Jack Hemp and Larry King were very good buddies. Help me out with the roommate, though. Uh, the roommate owned a nightclub in Washington, D.C. at one point. And he also did a very famous poster, ironically, with his leg on a Bentley. And uh, it's... Uh, Ralph Bentley. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were closer than close, only he's still alive, and I'm not going to mention that name. So he was he was living with... Oh, yeah. I, they were actually, bosom buddies. Uh, Larry King uh, campaigned for Jack Kemp's uh, presidential bid. Oh, yeah, through a major fundraiser. Kemp. And then, and there had been a lot of, uh, there, and I was amazed that actually Dole chose Kemp to be his vice presidential candidate. There's been so much innuendo about uh, Kemp's homosexuality prior to that. It was an innuendo. It was, yeah. you know, this guy was just a little bit uh, over the top. Uh, but you know what? It, it's not a question of Jack Kemp or anything else. I want to go back to one thing when you were talking, like Kurt King. Kurt King traveled with Larry, and when Larry traveled, he traveled with, believe it or not, a hairdresser. He traveled with the usual entourage, Barbara. I think it was Ward, I remember, from um, um, Franklin. And this is something that I was curious about. Along your way, did you ever find out if Larry actually had a catering company? Uh, he did have a catering company. Okay. That catering and, uh, company, a lot of the times on some of those flights back from Omaha... There were two or three, uh, and they were all of age, primarily black, uh, all well-dressed, articulate young men that would end up working the parties at Larry's house. They would do everything from cook to serve drinks to whatever, because they were part of his catering company. And that's the only time I ever saw anybody, quote-unquote, transported from Omaha on a plane. Frank, uh, what years... Circa, where are we now? This is mid to, mid to late 80s because uh, I think um, I started work at, and, and by the way, I wanted to preface something, and I mentioned this to Earl during the break. The fact that I ended up at the White House had zero to do with Larry King. It had to do with more New York City stuff that I was doing, and I got hired accordingly. And it was basically through my, my job on a, a, a daytime show. And through Burton J. Lee III, who became uh, George Herbert Walker's Bush traveling doctor during the Bush administration. But I was hired as the media coordinator for Reagan's uh, Presidential Commission on the HIV Epidemic in the middle of 1987. And the only time I ever got a call from the FBI, ironically, 
and they called me at my office in D.C., was regarding Larry King and, and a check that was made out to me. And I said, yeah, that was for services rendered for PR work, and that was for such and such and such and such. That was the only time they ever called me. And I never heard word one from them. And well, I, I think how that played out is uh, people that knew nothing about Larry's extracurricular activities were not hassled, hassled by the FBI. They probably realized that he knew nothing about them, so they just let it slide. Um well, at the time, I was also working with the FBI on another unrelated issue. And if you take a look on Amazon, there's a book called Codename Shortfall. And I was in, very much involved in something you know, that had the FBI involved, believe it or not, with the busting of a Russian spy who was with, the, uh, uh, with AMTOG at the United Nations, which was the Russian trade office. And that turned out to be a mess, too, but that's a different story. But... I'm literally working with the FBI on one hand in New York while all this is going down while I'm working at the White House in Washington and and, and all these accusations. You know, it's, it's funny. When I read the book, and I was there, I mean, he wouldn't have even had that house on California Street if it wasn't for me talking to a friend of mine who owned it. And she, in turn, rented it to him. I mean, I was... I would have to say intrinsically involved in the Washington, D.C. end of everything that was going on with Larry from, you know, the mid-80s to at least 87. But you and didn't know about him selling... I didn't know one you're thing. You're as close... You, you just, we just let you go for five minutes on, on your Washington time, and that's fine. Yeah. And how close you were with this guy, but nothing. Nothing. And the, the FBI let you alone because they knew you had nothing, but yet you were close. Yeah. How, that, how did that work? Yeah, and yet I'm well, able to say to him, like Kurt King, Kurt King used to write checks for Larry. Kurt King was with Larry at every point of the day, night, evening, whatever. I, I, I tried very hard to get Kurt King to talk to me, and he absolutely wouldn't. Did you ever so, talk to I, Joe Fook, the driver in New York? Because, I did not, but uh, I did talk to one of Larry's photographers pretty extensively. Yeah. And uh, he gave me, uh, he was quite uh, acquainted with Kurt King, and he gave me Kurt King's uh, name and number, and uh, and that started my pursuit of Kurt King. But Kurt King uh, wouldn't talk to me. And, and I have seen that in Franklin, where there were people that traveled with King that knew nothing about his dark side. Uh, he was very good at that. I mean, I think that people that traveled with him that weren't exposed to his dark side knew that something was wrong. I mean, it sounds like... To me, well, I knew he was gay. He was married. He had Alice, and he had his son, Prince, who was the most, yeah. at this point, I can say this, the most obnoxious, precocious five-year-old kid I've ever met in my entire life. But, um, and I met Larry's father and mother. A number was, of times. Was he a, a, a strictly a facilitator or a participant also? I can't imagine him being a participant. Who, who's that? Larry. Uh, according to the kids that I interviewed, uh, King was certainly integral in molesting kids. He, he, he definitely was. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, Jerry... I mean, if I can make an analogy, we were talking about the Jerry Sandusky case earlier. Um, there were a lot of people around Jerry Sandusky that knew nothing about his dark side. I mean, a lot of people that knew nothing about his dark side because uh, Penn State had kept that so exquisitely covered up. And it, a lot of people were, were that were affiliated with the Second Mile Foundation that Sandusky founded were completely shocked when these allegations surfaced about Jerry Sandusky. So who were the, the bad guys at, 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 at Penn State? 
Well, I mean, the bad guys were the ones that I think were indicted. There might have been some more, too. Uh, obviously, there were people in that administration, and Joe Paterno definitely knew uh, about uh, Sandusky's activities. And they kept it quiet. There was some. There was a coach that knew about Sandusky's activities that kept it quiet. These guys are able to compartmentalize their lives. I mean, we were talking earlier about Jack Kemp and his brazen homosexuality. I mean, Bob Dole, he was running as the vice presidential candidate with Bob Dole uh, in 1996. Now, why, I mean, why wouldn't the opposing party expose that as a way of undermining the campaign? Because the opposing party has people that are compromised, too. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, the one, that's the one thing that I've gotten out of Franklin is that, and, and I say it in the book, I, I, I've come to believe that the checks and balances in our government isn't the Congress, isn't the judiciary, isn't the executive. It's the dirt that he, these guys have on one another. And sexual blackmail is as old as politics itself. And it's an integral part of our political system. A lot of our politicians, I do believe, are currently compromised. And, and people think, uh, they see that we have a runaway government and, and a government that doesn't really adhere to it. Like, uh, Americans, for the most part, want us out of the Middle East. Uh, Americans, th there's a number of directions that our country is going that a lot of Americans are opposed to, but our politicians go those ways not, you know, take our country in that direction nonetheless. And I think a, a major problem is that these politicians are compromised. People think that it's special interest money, and I'm not disputing that fact, but I think that there's another part of this that these politicians are compromised, and I think the reason why this hasn't surfaced is there, according to my investigation, there are a number of people in the media that are compromised, too. Like who? Well, like me, for um, instance. Um, Actually, the book that will be published in April of this year, uh, Confessions of a D.C. Madam, will expose some politicians and pundits, uh, some pundits that sit atop the, uh, the media food chain as far as uh, possibly being compromised. For instance? So, oh, there's a judge on Fox that's going to be nervous. For instance? It's, so it's, it's, it's very interesting for me to investigate this for seven years, I mean, it kind of turned my whole attitude about politics around. I, I really thought, before I started investigating this, that the checks and balances system was the Congress, the judiciary, and the executive. But I, I think it's the dirt that these guys have Speaking of dirt, Mark Boyer has a question. Um, this is not new. Um, we would not be a country if it wasn't for Benjamin Franklin. Uh, courting the powerful uh, in France uh, to get them to ply their wiles against their men to get France into the conflict, which ultimately produced our victory. So this kind of stuff isn't new. Like what? Well, that's what I said earlier. Uh, it said that uh, prostitution is the oldest profession. I kind of think that politics is probably the oldest profession. They're very similar. And um, and I think that uh, political blackmail has been around for as long as politics has been around. So um, it's, I, I, I do not think it's new, but now we have things called videotape. And, uh, and videotape means no political party. <laughs> no party. Which, uh, which we didn't have in Benjamin Franklin's days. 
So, uh, so right. things have changed a little bit. Do we still have videotape? I thought that was long well, now we're digital. I, I, I'm moving into the 21st century. Yeah. Well, most of my sex is digital. <laughs> I still use the hole in the 45. Wow, so needle dick? That up bump. Oh, brother. So, uh, uh, so you didn't see, so Frank is sitting here, you didn't see any anything sketchy going on. No. Never in Washington, D.C., never saw anything sketchy. No, I mean, I saw Larry doing various things in various other cities but it was mostly you know in, in, you know it was mostly gay oriented it wasn't you know and that didn't shock me i'm gay yeah. you know but i'm looking at this whole thing in, were, in were retrospect you, were, were you out then yeah yeah and actually and, and 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 go shock everybody i was a republican back in those days too but let me ask you this. I mean, now that you look back on it in retrospect, I mean, the, the wealth that King had, the power that King had, the juice that King had, can you see that he was possibly getting this illicitly? I mean, when you look back at that... When you look back on this in retrospect? Well, I go back to my statement earlier about what that woman, the psychic, uh, what she said about him in San Francisco. And that had me starting to question it because he was spending stupid money. And nobody that makes money legally spends it the way that he spent it. And yeah, something about illegal money, you use it as, as if it were discretion. I mean, it got to the point where I literally would be, you know, if, if I got a plane ticket, I went, oh, I have to fly commercial. Mm. That's how often I was on the Lear 35A, Lear 25A, Cessna Citation, and he also had a twin-engine Beechcraft. Mark. I have, I have one more question. Um, the The overall uh, concept here is that his network was through the entire country. We have been focusing on Omaha and um, Washington. Washington. Um, so what? Uh, where else were the kids shipped and what evidence do you have of the abuse in other places besides these two? Yeah, we got to make it fast, though. As I said, I've got uh, flight receipts that go all over the country, and at this point, I've talked to a number of his victims who claim to have been uh, flown all over the country. L.A. was uh, was a big destination, also, uh, but kids have talked to me about being flown to uh, to Texas, to uh, Colorado, to Chicago, all around Colorado. Yeah. Yes. Franklin Scandal by Nick Bryant, one of America's finest investigative Bravo, journalists. Nick. Thank you very much for coming along. Nick, yeah, you've been, a hey, couple, you've been, up, you been with us a couple times. Come back again. Please. Hey, Burl. Yeah. What's coming up next? I think that Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence, setting the standard for beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry, is next on Outlaw Radio.